0: What do they say? Third time's a charm? More like 30. Let's see if you can get it right this time. Hey, it's Sachet, and this is The Conscious Creator Show. Through exclusive interviews with authors, actors, entrepreneurs, musicians, other podcasters, and all kinds of creators, we'll explore how to make a life through your art without selling your soul. The creative side of business and the business side of being a creator, if you will, We've got a host of amazing partners like Brain.fm and other amazing companies, so head on over to creators.show, that's C-R-E-A-T-O-R-S.show to get new episodes, exclusive guides, partner deals, and more. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode with Yancy Strickler. Yancy Strickler is a writer and entrepreneur, and he is the co-founder and former CEO of Kickstarter and the author of the amazing book, This Could Be Our Future. Yancy has been recognized as a young global leader by the World Economic Forum and one of Fast Company's most creative people. He's spoken at the Museum of Modern Art, Sundance and Tribeca Film Festivals, Web Summit, MIT, and events around the globe. He co-founded the Artist resource, The Creative Independent, and the record label E! Music Selects. And he grew up up in Clover Hollow, Virginia, and began his career as a music critic in New York City. I'm really excited to bring you this episode. It was one I was looking forward to for a long, long time. Um, We explore Yancey's beginning from his move to New York City as a music critic and all of the work that influenced his work at Kickstarter, how he and his co-founders infused Kickstarter with very intentional values and why he loves sci-fi and more. Yancy also shares information about his decision-making framework called Bentoism and how he found and developed the idea. Some of my favorite parts are uh, where we talk about initially how up until now, if you want to raise uh, venture capital, you have to be in New York or San Francisco just for the necessary relationship building. And how he thinks um, with the recent increased interest in less urban areas, there may be a development of flyover tech, uh, rural red state tech, particularly with the increase in working remotely. And we're seeing that, especially with everything around happening around COVID. To, just today, uh, Jack Dorsey of Twitter made it so that anyone at Twitter can work from home forever if they want. And we're going to see so many changes with that. So we, we talk about that or what those implications could mean. This was obviously recorded a few few weeks back. We, we talk about how Yancy found himself thinking about his future and where he wants to go and realized that he could divide his life into now me, future me, now us, and future us. And that led to him creating this framework called Bento, which stands for Beyond Near-Term Orientation, just like the Japanese bento box. And it's something I've actually used uh, after the interview, um, and it's been really helpful to see where your focus is and, and what you're focusing on. One of my Favorite parts was at the end where we talk about what being a conscious creator means for him and how for him it means having intentionality, working through your vague ideas and finding its meaningful expression. We also talk about how when they raised funding for Kickstarter, they never announced it because it would have been discussed exclusively in the technology press and that attention would only create competition in the space and how Kickstarter was really like from the ground up built for creatives, not for tech investors. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is where we talk about how, basically in every world, we can, it's. I think it's, can you create value for people? Can you reach out to people with gives instead of with asks? Those are things that go a long way, traits that go a long way are communication and critical thinking. And that's. I just love that quote. So this is a wide-ranging conversation. And without further ado, here's Yancy. All right, Yancy, welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you on.
1: It's so good to be here in person in this public, crowded public space. Uh, you no, know, just kidding. Yes. From my bunker to yours. Hello. Nice to talk to you. Yeah.
0: You've got a nice bunker there. <laughs> I'm lucky yeah, to have all of these books behind me in the bunker. I don't know what I would do without them.
1: That's great. It's just hopefully you can eat them later.
0: <laughs> if I run out of canned I'm going to go to the books.
1: There you go. There you go.
0: So first of all, I want to just acknowledge and say thank you to Justin who had reached out and, and for introducing us. and. I actually wanted to start at a different place. Definitely want to get into the founding story of Kickstarter and your book and just everything you've done. But I want to start about like, kind of like talking about sort of your early growing up here, because I know you had mentioned you grew up in the country and especially now, I think with everything happening, there's, I feel like there's going to be a migration for people like wanting to move from cities to sort of like more open spaces. So let's start with there.
1: It's true. I think there might be a great kind of dispersion again, yeah, I grew up in Southwest Virginia and Appalachia. I started living on a farm. I mean, I always kind of lived on a farm, but lived on a proper farm starting about age six or seven. And it had no neighbor within a couple miles. So, and also we didn't really have television. So I just had books and Lego. And I did get a Nintendo at some point. So I had Zelda, but a fairly isolated experience growing up. And Struggled with that, especially during high school, being in a place I was culturally, I liked indie music. I was like the closest thing, the most alt kid in high school in the 90s that didn't have alt kids yet because it was such a rural area. But that wasn't easy. But with time, I ended up moving to New York a few years after that. But with time, I've grown to really appreciate where I grew up and growing up in a place that is slower, growing up in a place with a different worldview than the kinds of places I've lived since in big cities. And yeah, and the kind of place that I think people of my generation and the generation younger are going to start moving to the country in a way that maybe the internet and remote work made that a theoretical possibility, but probably we still felt the need to hold on to these trophy cities for our identity. Certainly Mm -hmm. for me, living in New York, I love New York, but a lot of my identity was built up in being a New Yorker. And for me to try to be that and say, still living where I grew up, that would have been, I would have had a lot of internal struggles with that about the gap between, I don't know, my internet and real life personas or something like that. But so, yeah, I think that's going to happen. And, you know, and interestingly that happened in the sixties and seventies where a lot of hippies started communes, became homesteaders. Some of my friends I ended up meeting later on in high school came from families who had moved to the same rural area in the 60s and 70s. My family was was from there. And so you had that moment of like the hippies going to the country, having this kind of retreat and their children growing up. And that now some of those children are, I think are gonna be doing the same thing, but for a, a different set of reasons, but I think potentially as big a cultural shift.
0: And especially in the context of tech, like there's this whole thing where if you're raising venture, right? I actually had a call with a friend about this yesterday you have to be in SF or like have to be in like SF in, in New York. How do you feel that's going to change?
1: Well, I mean, I think that's, there's a truth. There's a, so, there's a social truth to that, which is that, you know, it's the most cliche thing in the world, which is how much access and funding and opportunity is relationship created. So cities and communities and scenes are like a great equalizer for that. And I think are super positive. The, the flip side is like the global scene, which I think is really fundamentally Twitter. And there you have the possibility from having a strong voice, from building a following to like break out of those pockets and to create a, be a part of a larger kind of network community. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard because there is so much of like the social vouching that happens when you're trying to say, get people to buy into the early stages of an idea. You're really asking people to put some faith and trust in you. And to do that, you tend to need a lot of like social triangulation to give people the confidence to say, hand over a check. That will change. I mean, definitely you see in companies like Buffer or Gumroad, companies that have been, or Basecamp that have been early on like fully distributed remote work that are now embracing a growth path that is reflective of like what their culture is and what their working style is. And so I think that you're going to see, you will probably see every major VC firm like has their clean tech person, their blockchain person, their whatever person. Maybe everyone's going to have their like not New York, not SF, not Boston person, you know, (laughs) whose job is just like you are, to put in the derogatory term, you are the flyover VC give us whatever, find the diamonds in the rough, create opportunity. It might start that way, but I have no doubt that things like that will work, right? Because I think that there's going to be, if you're an entrepreneur that's not coming from one of those cities, and let's say you're solving a problem that you see around you, in all likelihood, you're maybe seeing something that people in those larger cities are going to miss because the challenges of a more spread out environment or of a, just sort of like the different interests of a rural community versus an urban <laughs> community. There's going to be huge amounts of opportunity there. So I think there will end up being almost like a, there could be like blue state tech, red state tech of sort of products and services that feel more relevant and even are like marketing, using the marketing language of those Mm -hmm. different kinds of communities. So that will be an upswing, especially if you can hire remote workers, especially if the best engineers are, are similarly leaving cities and everyone is at this moment of like the great halo of the trophy cities diminishes.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that you mentioned the marketing because you definitely do see this in politics and, and you're right, like it doesn't really happen in tech companies because they're just so focused on the coast. And it'll, it'll be interesting to see that shift.
1: You see that in, D, in direct-to-consumer. There, I think you see products that are running advertising that runs across mm-hmm. ideological spectrum. I mean, something like Harry's. I mean, I think Harry's advertises on Drudge Report, probably also mm-hmm. advertises on like NPR podcasts. And maybe the creative is slightly different. I can't say exactly. But, but yeah, there is a blind spot that happens in either community to the other. Mm-hmm. You know, and for me, growing up in the country, I cared about the wider world, but most of the people around me weren't all that interested. I live in the city. I'm still interested in the country. And most of the people around me aren't <laughs> all that interested, right? There is a, right. there is a it's, just, it's just hard for everyone to see each other. What do people that grew up... So I grew up in, in Delhi,
0: and I've always lived in cities in the US after moving here. What do people who did grow up in the country, like not understand about growing up there?
1: I mean, I think it's just, um, I don't know if it, even know if it's, it might not even be that different. I don't know. I mean, it's a pace of life. It's like very hospitable, but also like taking time to build relationships. There's a lot of in-group, out-groupness that will happen. <laughs> but in general, it's like kind of, it's it, a little bit of it is the feeling of watching what is, watching something like Friends or Seinfeld in the 90s, say for me. And watching something that is so clearly like urban, more quote unquote liberal, progressive, like representing a different kind of lifestyle. And you can just feel how different that is. Like, I don't know, maybe someone watching a show like that, they think, Oh, well, that's just like that's so like my life. But you watch this, you know, I'd watch those things growing up, and it just it felt like watching a a documentary of a different universe. And there's just so many assumptions built into the language of our cultural products that Mm. presume a shared belief system that is like way more excluding than people might realize. I mean, a strange as one I always think about for like a liberal business, say putting a, or a business putting a all are welcome sticker in the front door and listing all the types of people that are welcome. In reality, I think that that acts as like a warning to someone who has more of a conservative background to say, I'm not welcome here. The need to list everyone who's welcome makes me feel unwelcome. And so they're just these cross signals that are quite challenging and messy and hard, you know, hard to get right and requires just a a lot of, a lot of being able to think in the mind of someone else, to take yourself out of your own shoes. I'm reminded of something that Sahil wrote before Mm -hmm. about talking to people when he moved to Provo and talking to people who said, I can't believe you're a Republican living in San Francisco. And it's just because they were speaking on the level of values that they assume that they believe the same thing because they were speaking beyond the language of current events and they're speaking at the language of values and there they found tremendous agreement. And I think that's almost always the case. Yeah, I love that you
0: mentioned that. So that was actually one of our first few guests and that article, I think it's called From Bubble to Bubble, from where I moved to SF2, I think Provo. It was so insightful. So you mentioned friends and it's interesting because growing up in India, that was actually, I used to come visit the US and go to Nebraska until I started seeing friends and I was like, wait, this is the same country, so it's interesting that you mentioned that. So you decided to move from Virginia to New York and become a music critic. So tell us about that move and what that was
1: like. Well, I went to college at a place called William & Mary in Virginia. and there, I studied English and literary and cultural studies. And... I start my dream growing up was to be a writer, you know, reading books all the time, living on the farm just made me want to write. And I wrote all the time as a kid, poems, stories, any just like a thing that I would do for fun. And um and during college I started Reviewing records, I started writing for Pitchfork. I was one of the first critics for Pitchfork when it first began in '98, '99, and that was really like fulfilling a dream because I've been played music my whole life and very knowledgeable, care very much about music. and And so when I graduated college, I actually didn't have a plan. I'd been a townie where I went to college. Like I worked as a mover. I was the night manager at a Days Inn hotel. I did tech support for professors. I had three jobs all through college. Like I really, I kind of liked working more than school in a lot of ways. But I didn't really know what I was going to do. And then my best friend from high school, the friend whose parents had moved to the country in the 70s, he gave me a call saying he and a group of people were moving to New York and they got in a house in Coney Island. There was an extra bedroom. It was mine. If I wanted it, the only trick was I had to be there by like within two days, something crazy. Like I had to be there immediately (laughs) because basically someone else had backed out. So I uh, I was the fallback. And what's funny is that the deadline was to be there was so fast. I just said yes. I think if, if I had had more time to think about it, maybe I would have said I'm not ready. But I just said yes and moved to New York in 2000. And my first job was reviewing, was on the radio, DJs will read out the news on the air. And my first job was to write those blurbs that DJs would read. And I wrote like entertainment and like pop and rock news blurbs. And so when a DJ would read out a 40 word or just like a very short story about Blink-182s setting a record on the charts or Moby being bitten by something and now being afraid he had he has rabies, which I seem to remember was being a story back <laughs> in the day. Like I would have to write these things so that a DJ could read it out and it would have to be super short and punchy, would always have to have a pun or a joke in it. And I had to write 12 of those a day for about three and a half years. And that was great. That, and such a great economy of writing, just sort of being forced to become a machine like that is quite, like, quite helpful. And then I started doing, being a freelance music critic. I, my first paying piece was for The Village Voice. I wrote a piece on spec. like I just reviewed a record and sent it to the editor and they accepted it. And then I yeah, made a living doing that for about four or five years. And ended up starting a record label putting out first records by these baby bands i was seeing at house shows in brooklyn and always on the edges of the scene but caring very deeply and yeah just having fun and it was during the midst of all that that kickstarter started happening and and that that was uh that was just that was there was a restaurant in brooklyn where i would go often i was a regular a very cool place called diner and there's a guy who worked there waited tables there and we got to become friends. And one day he asked me to meet up after work and he ended up sharing with me this idea he'd had for crowdfunding. Mm -hmm. Um, This is Perry Chen. And Perry, about three years before, told me he was living in New Orleans and he'd wanted to throw this concert and he was going to have to front about 20 grand to do it. And he did not want to take on that kind of risk, nor could he. So he had this idea of what if he proposed the idea for the concert online. People put up their credit cards to buy tickets, but no one's card is charged unless the show sells out. In this way, the public could decide whether the show happened instead of him. And then, you know, maybe, this, maybe the show happens. But he had several years of like not knowing how to make that because he was not a technical, not an engineer. And this was like 2000, early 2000. This was the com crash. This is like, you know, this is even pre-MySpace. And so, yeah, we started working on this idea And at the time my day job was at a tech company, like an editorial role at a tech company. So Mm -hmm. I had more familiarity with how things worked and began this arduous process of trying to make Kickstarter. We came across Charles Adler about a year later. Charles is a co-founder of Kickstarter also and a designer. And then from the time Perry and I met to the site launching was about four years and four years of trying to get Kickstarter off the ground. But really struggling as non-technical people In a moment where building a website was still a very technical process. Now you have AWS and EC2 and a lot of things you can stripe, a lot of things you can chain together. Kickstarter was right before those kinds of things were simplified things to such a great extent. And so we were stuck for a long time with an idea that we believe passionately in, but with an inability to execute, but finally launched. And when you're in sort of like a a situation like that, like how do you think
0: about when to
1: keep going versus throwing in the towel. Well, I think that, I think that varied for all of us. I and mean, I think for Harry, especially, you know, I think his timeline was always going back to like 2001, 2002, when he'd first had the idea. So like whatever obstacles we were running into, there was a context that like, well, I've been pushing on this idea for six or seven years already. So like, am I really going to stop without it existing? Right. Like how do? aren't I at least going to finish the race? And so he, Perry's drive was always extremely strong because he just believed that the idea made sense. For me, what's interesting is that I was the last, I still had a day job. So during this period where we're all doing this, working on it, Perry and Charles didn't have other jobs. So they were both full-time on it. I had a day job. I was doing nights and weekends. And I'd never come from money and that making that leap, making that leap of quitting the job and the job that I really liked because I ran uh-huh. a team, you know, I ran a label, like a lot of things I did that I really yeah. enjoyed. And so giving that up was scary to me. And for me to do that, it wasn't until Kickstarter had been live for maybe like two and a half months that I left my job. And at that point, like the inbound email was just so substantial that it was just clear that like, there is a job, like there's a job here beyond mm-hmm. what I'm able to give it and that this is working. But yeah, both knowing to stick with it and then also like making that choice to commit. Those were like massive existential questions at the time, but mm-hmm. now in retrospect feel like tiny blips. Right. But you know, definitely for like months or even years that was like the most pressing psychic cloud was in those spaces. But yeah, I mean, there was a belief in the idea, but there was this challenge of like, how do we get over this present tense hump to get to what we know will become true? And yeah, not easy. At
0: that time or now, like, are there certain tools and frameworks that you use to make decisions like those? At the time,
1: then no. I think I had no consistent decision-making other than just like, Worry, anxiety, <laughs> anxiety was my was my mental model. <laughs> um, you know, now I do have an actual framework that I use to make these choices. And this came from the course of writing this book that came out late last year uh, called "This Could Be Our Future." And one of the things during my years in Kickstarter and sort of my last four years at Kickstarter, I was the CEO up until about two years ago, two and a half years ago. And one of the great Challenges as an organization, as a leader, like knowing where you want to go. That I mean, that's not easy, but like that's a thing you can do. Mm-hmm. But to consistently make choices in the direction of where you want to go is much harder than you think. And the reasons why it's hard are like there's many. One is like convincing people that this is the right place to go and reminding them of where you're going. Another is that every day there will be obstacles and distractions from your destination that will always be will almost always feel more pressing than again where you want to be going. And so there's just this immense challenge of like maintaining a consistent direction because like my best points as a leader came from being able to maintain a consistent course. My worst moments as a leader came from being opportunistic. It's sort of Mm -hmm. like grabbing what seemed to be coming our way. And you do that for eight months and then you find out like, did, did any of this really matter? Did we just stay busy or did we actually build anything here? And so the need there is to have a, just to be moving consistently in the same direction. And so in the course of writing the book, I created a framework and a philosophy that really solves for this. And I came up with this while I was, one day I was just doodling on a piece of paper and I drew a hockey stick chart graph, a simple like XY axis graph where there's a line sloping up and to the right. Like, this is the ultimate vision of success. And I doodled this and thinking, okay, this is a graph of self-interest. And I just had this Idle thought that like the x-axis along the bottom that measures time. And actually it goes from now all the way far into the future. So we can actually extend the x-axis of this hockey stick chart far much farther out. And the y-axis measuring whatever value it is you're trying to grow, fame, power, just a self-interest of some kind, that y-axis also keeps growing. And as your as your self-interest grows, so does your responsibilities. And I thought that y-axis goes from me to us as it grows. And suddenly I looked at what had been a very simple hockey stick chart Mm -hmm. and i completed this box and made it a two by two where there were four boxes. There was Mm -hmm. now me, that's the bottom left corner where that hockey stick chart lives. There's future me, that's the bottom right corner and that's imagining what the older, wiser version of yourself wants you to do. There's in the top left, now us, thinking of mm-hmm. those relationships, those people you're accountable to, or responsible for. And then finally, in the top right, your future us, thinking of your kids and the world they'll inherit. And mm-hmm. as I looked at this, I thought, this is actually feels like a real map of where my life operates, of like where, what my life truly is. There's now me, there's the future me, mm-hmm. there's now us, there's like the people that rely on me, there's this future us. So I thought, what is this a graph of? And I wrote down a description next to it, just said, this is a graph of beyond near-term orientation, beyond near-term orientation, just help you see the long-term. And when I looked at that beyond near-term orientation, I realized it was an acronym for BENTO. And Mm I thought, I immediately thought back to the Japanese bento box and how the bento has a variety, has like the four compartments, four or five compartments that lets you hold a variety of dishes without them getting spoiled. So the bento always offers a diverse and balanced meal and that the bento also honors a Japanese dieting philosophy called hadahachibu, which <coughs> says the goal of a meal is to be 80% full. That way you're still hungry for tomorrow. And so I thought, oh, this, this two by two, this is a bento box, but for my values and decisions. A way for me to step outside of this now me where I get trapped of just trying to solve every question by what do I want and need right in the second and instead letting me see the full spectrum of where I operate. And so now the bento is actually how I make Every choice in life. I mean, it really is. Like I there's a series of questions you go through for each of these boxes. And there's a website, bentoism.org, where you can do this, where you answer one of these questions and it sort of guides you to what your values and goals are. And so then when you're making choices, should I do this? Should I take this job? Should I confront this person? You sort of you consult your bento and just sort of see what each of these perspectives tells you. Is this in line with who you are? Is this true to your nature? Is this like living up to what you expect Mm -hmm. out of yourself. And through there, it creates the ability to make coherent choices.
0: So can you share some examples of like ways of thinking or or decisions you've made recently through this? And particularly some that were like hard decisions.
1: Yeah, well, I'll share one older one, one recent one. The first time, so I like to know what your values are in each of these boxes. It's just like a little like journaling exercise. For now me, it's like, what do I want to need right now? And (laughs) you're basically trying to find what are your core values? What's most important to you? And also kind of like, what's your flow state? What makes mm-hmm. you your best? And that's part of your life. So for my now me value, it is showing people the matrix. The idea of like connecting together how the world mm-hmm. works, telling narrative stories. That's just like something that I'm good at and that I enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. My future me, I'm don't sell out. If I look mm-hmm. at Kickstarter all my life, it's all about holding on to these values and never, never letting go of values for reasons of money for very deep reasons, that's core to me. My now us values about deep time with select friends. I'm an amazing, great friend. I'm a pretty bad acquaintance, but like I'll I'll talk to you for five hours and never look at my phone once. But if someone texts me, I might never write them back. And then my future us is about building a better matrix. The world Mm -hmm. I envision is not one where there aren't like our decisions aren't being made for us, but ones where that's more helpful. So not long after I came up with this, I got invited to give a paid speech for a company that I don't like, and I've I've been invited to give speeches for companies I don't like in the past, and I've always said no, and I've also felt like angry when I've been invited to do this. I just kind of pissed at them for even daring to. And I got who you to ask me to speak? Exactly, and then. I got one of these shortly after coming up with the bento and sort of Mm -hmm. identifying my values. And I was about to decline. And then I thought, you know what, I should ask my bento. And so I put it to the question. So I asked my now me, should I give this talk for a company (laughs) I don't like? My now me's value is to show people the matrix. And it says, sure, this is what you do. My now us value, which says deep time, should I do a talk for a company I don't like? Now us value says, sure, 90 minutes talking about ideas like that seems cool. No issue there. Future Us, which wants to build a better matrix, says, absolutely. Like, you shouldn't be preaching to the choir. This is actually exactly where you should be speaking. <laughs> and then I got to my Future Me, which says, don't sell out. And that voice says, no, you're selling out. are <laughs> doing this for the money. And I suddenly realized that this voice that had been, that it made me feel angry in the past, I had isolated it. And I could see that this voice was like a bouncer looking out for my values. My future Mm -hmm. me was this big dude who was just looking out for things that I didn't want, but that because I could view this sort of whole picture of seeing everything that was going on for me, I had the right and the ability and the agency to tap that bouncer on the shoulder and say, no, it's cool, let this one in. And so that like really, like I made a fundamentally different decision while being certain that I was making a choice that was in integrity with who I am and Mm -hmm. a choice that like, 10 minutes before, if you told me that's what I needed to do, I would have gotten so angry at you for like, how dare you force me to like betray myself. And so that was a real, that was really eye opening because it, what it revealed to me was I was already having conversations like this, but maybe because I couldn't see what was going on, I was more captive to voices than I needed to be. Right. But, but by having this, like seeing this full spectrum, I had more, yeah, just more agency. Um, More recently, few months ago, I began creating a weekly practice where I write in my notebook, what should I do with my energy this week? I do it on a (laughs) weekly basis. And below that, I draw a blank bento. And Mm -hmm. I ask each of those spaces to sort of like make the request for my time. (laughs) So my now me, what do you want me to, what now me, what do you want to do this week? Now me is always like errands, you know, it's always like self-promote try to get mm-hmm. something from somebody. It's like the yeah. greedy part. So I write down all those things. Normally my to-do list is almost only those things. <laughs> but now like those things come out, but then I ask my future me, well, what do you want me to do this week? And my future me, which is like this Obi-Wan Kenobi of me, looking back through time says like, why don't you try reading this book? Probably really going to help you out. Mm-hmm. You know, Try reaching out to this institution that maybe you can align yourself with. It's, it's always encouraging mm-hmm. me to basically to learn. And also to like stick to these longer projects. My now us always reminds me of like my family and friends. And the fact that time spent with my family is not like an airport layover of like not work time, which is when I was a CEO, the mode you can get in. But it Mm -hmm. reminds me that that is also like time of incredible value and that like I should balance my time with it. So when I ask my, do my weekly bento check-in for my now us, it's telling me to like plan a date day with your wife, like embrace the time with your child, call these Five friends who you haven't spoken to in the last two weeks. So it's sort of, I like scope out my social time in that way. And then future us, future us is amazing because that will remind me of the larger projects I'm working on. So whereas the now me will say, yo, like send another tweet about your book, try to get your Amazon sales rank up. Yeah, <laughs> My future us will say, why are you caring about the book? You need to be working on your next project. Stop looking mm-hmm. backwards. And so I go through this every week. And I sort of get from each box, like it's sort of requests for what I should do. Mm-hmm. And then I make my schedule for the week ahead based on that. And so my schedule now is like a truly balanced thing where I am doing the day-to-day of what needs to be done, but I am also scoping out work for these larger things that I'm able to see provide real value for me. And so now in the, now in the lockdown I'm I'm still using this, but the Mm -hmm. one thing I discovered very early on was that normally when I do my weekly bento, I start with now me because that's what's most obvious. Um, When I started doing the weekly bento during the lockdown, my now me was a total mystery—a total mystery. What should I do? I have no idea. Instead, the space that was obvious was now us, because I have a family, I have a child, and instead, during when I did this during the lockdown, it's like, oh well, now us is what's important, and Mm -hmm. everything started from there, and the other spaces sort of build themselves out after that. But through that, I could see, wow, my self-perception has shifted from being very individualistic to very group oriented, you know, Mm -hmm. as a result of this experience. And it has like shifted everything about my time uh, ever since. That's fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I think
0: one, I love your value of the the never sell out. That's sort of the context of the show is helping artists do that. And I love how sort of like you're through this exercise, you're almost, um, giving like different parts of yourself a voice. Like one of my favorite books is Reboot by Jerry Colonna, where he talks about like being, like how people sort of like don't embrace their shadow and things. And in this, what you're doing is not only are you giving the different parts of yourself a voice, but also different versions of yourself a voice, like the future one. How do you define sort of like, when you're doing like the future you, do you have a whole picture of like where you want to go or who that would be or how do you sort of define that?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I do... I mean, I I very much, in a way I think of this as like a form of method acting. I've never Mm -hmm. been like school plays or whatever. I'm not, I have no theatrical experience beyond that. But I basically think of it as like my conscious, I'm so grateful for my conscious mind. It serves me so well. It also limits me. And when I'm able to trick it into getting out of the way, I find enormous benefits. And a lot of the experience I had of writing the book and the experience I had of leading and just my day-to-day is like kind of, looking at myself with like, as like this very helpless creature, (laughs) this helpless creature that I love so much that I wish to assist and that wants to do the right things, but just struggles to see what those things are. And I just have to fool. I have to trick it. I have to give it tools. I have to allow it to show itself. So like when I'm stepping into my future, me, I literally do. I picture like some version of me that looks like Obi-Wan like wearing a robe, long hair, <laughs> salt and pepper, you know, still got the body, got the agility, like of <laughs> doing great for eighty-five, doing great for eighty-five. My <laughs> wife is right there with me. But it's it's the version of me that, yeah, that just feels proud, feels proud of the life it lived. And I I don't know how truly I could speak for that voice, but I feel like when I try to get into that headspace, and I'll and I'll I'll give example of doing that in just a second. But when I try to get <laughs> in that headspace, I do I do kind of take on a different model of myself, and I do feel like it speaks differently. I do feel like it gives me a different kind of message. So, one of the things I did during the during early on the lockdown is I gave myself this exercise where I said, "Okay, imagine it's April 2022, two years from now. The lockdown is finally over. The worst is behind us. You're leaving your house. You lost people you care about, but still you feel grateful because throughout the lockdown you managed to make the most of it." by keeping these three things in mind. So what are those three things? And then you have this moment where you have to try to imagine that. And you try to imagine, all right, two years from now, I'm leaving my house. I'm imagining this like blank expanse of time between now and then. Let's imagine it works out. Let's imagine it's not perfect. Let's imagine it generally works out the way I would want it to. What does that look like? And what does that mean I'm doing every day? Mm -hmm. And so for me, when I asked that question, like the first one was like that I'm taking care of my family and uh, just like a simple like protector thing. But the second instinct was that the lockdown and homeschooling are just like a fun family adventure that I fully embrace the idea of like, this is just going to be the best time ever. And really, I have a four-year-old, but to like not be bitchy about like, mm-hmm. the different responsibilities that were happening. And that my third, and my third goal was that I spent, or what, what would make it successful for me is that I spent my more limited work time on a single project. And so when I, like, again, I imagine this future version of myself, what makes them happy, that's what I thought made that person happy. And what that did for me is that emotionally really shifted me. It shifted maybe me imagining the time I'm spending homeschooling my kid is like, oh, this is just a little bit of time I'm away from my work. Mm -hmm. Instead thinking, no, this is my job. This is my job for five hours a day. And I have three hours a day where I get to do the things I used to do. But that's just what this is now, and that is what it means for me to be in integrity with the the world I find myself in. What I get out of that is it creates meaning even when I'm going through like the groundhog dayness of this. I can see how I'm incrementally working towards a larger goal like mm-hmm. every day that is that we survive is a day towards achieving goal number one, every day mm-hmm. that I' am like awake and present for homeschooling time like at the day I'm achieving goal number two and but those are the kinds of things that are very easy to become lazy about over the longer term. And I think that's a lot of what, like that exercise of seeing that future me is it's trying to give you that carrot of the grind. Mm-hmm. It's showing you here is the outcome. Here's the outcome of that grind rather than just grinding every day and hoping there's a good outcome at the end.
0: Mm-hmm. And it also, one thing I'm learning as you were talking about it is sort of like making sure that all the four are balanced. Because my instinct was, okay, like I can get stuff done in this time, which sort of maybe like now me and future me, but maybe ignoring the now us part, because that's important too.
1: Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, like, I was very much, uh, I was probably mostly a now, probably like a now me future us person in a weird Mm -hmm. way as a CEO. It's like, what has to be done? And just like, you're just trying to climb the hill. And now, I think now us was harder for me to reach. and Even future me, was harder was harder for me to think about. And now I do think of like, what's a good day? A good day is a day where I get to check each of the four boxes. And what does that mean? That means, I mean, to be me, that literally means I want a phone call with a friend every single day. Like I know which friend I'm going to call after we talk today. And that's going to mm-hmm. be like, and it's going to help me feel full and enriched. Mm-hmm. And a good, yeah, a good day is where I hit them all. And those are, this phrase that keeps coming to me is like that that is being coherent. It's being coherent with who I am. Mm-hmm. And like the, when we feel so sick to our stomach because we feel off with ourselves, it's an, it's an incoherence. Um, another way I think about this is to say that like, in a, without something like a bento or meditation, we have a passive awareness of the world. And to me, passive means like you're just reactionary. Passive can yep. still mean you like run when something's chasing you. It doesn't mean mm-hmm. you just sit still, but it means you're just reacting to what's in front of you. I think the other form of awareness is active awareness. And active awareness is seeing all spaces of the bento. It's being able to not just react to events happening right now, but it's anticipating future events, which allows you to shape events before they reach you. Mm -hmm. And that is the superpower of active awareness. And that's the superpower of using something like a bento framework Mm -hmm. to see how you operate. Because we have, every one of us has the potential of agency in all of these spaces. And really every one of us has like those spaces are alive in us and around us. Mm-hmm. But culturally, depending on where you live, most likely one couple of these spaces are emphasized and others are not. So in the mm-hmm. U.S., in the West, it's like we're now me. We're very now and me oriented Individualistic. Cultures. Right. Yeah. But I would say in something like China, mm-hmm. I would say not now oriented time is almost like not even a axis here and it's very much us oriented versus individualistically oriented. So I don't think that there's like a, we are born individualists or we are born a member of a community, but I think all these spaces are real. They all exist for all of us. And that really what a, a fulfilling life, a life that is in integrity with who you are, is one that can acknowledge and speak to and really grow value in all of these spaces.
0: Yeah, and I love what you said about different cultures. And I think in that context, actually, of sort of China being more us and the Western culture being more me, it sort of explains why these ideals of like stay at home and lockdowns worked way better in those countries where here, like, there's people on the beach because they're just kind of like looking at this as a vacation because there's like cultural cultural orientations too within these boxes.
1: Well, I think this is, China has been the world leader in this moment. I mean, it started in China. And Mm -hmm. yes, there is like, what do we trust at the data? This is not like to absolve that you know, government by any stretch, but it started there and everyone else is just following the model of what China did. Like mm-hmm. if this virus had its first outbreak in the US. God knows, God knows what that initial response would have been like. And this, of course, the virus is also, it's a mini climate change. It's a mm-hmm. miniature climate change. And so similarly with climate change, what we're going to see is that the Chinese and the Eastern perspective of long-termism Mm -hmm. Is going to be, and collectivism is going to be far more adept at creating scalable solutions to climate change than the West. The challenge is that that's going to become because of a lesser belief in individualism. Mm -hmm. And so you will see totalitarian solutions that I think will be grave injustices on individual levels, but like on other levels could be argued as like necessary for survival. In that kind of brutal logic. So I think we're seeing a little bit of that now. But my general belief is that we're still at the very beginning of this, and that there's going to be multiple false endings to this crisis. Mm-hmm. And that that kind of active awareness, the passive awareness, your passive awareness gets you to buy toilet paper. The active awareness says like buy a bidet. Passive oh. awareness says buy frozen foods. Active awareness says buy seeds. Passive awareness mm-hmm. says, don't wear a mask because who says they're not effective? Active awareness says, yeah, I'm buying one anyway. Um, and so that's really the quarantine, the lockdown is the passive response to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. The active response is to identify it and to manage it, to track it, to cure it, you know, to, to create mm-hmm. vaccines for it. And that is the much more difficult challenge, of
0: course. And then for me, like, when, I, when I think of the passive thing, it almost reminds like, it's like, like the short term or the long term, which is like now and, and future. What actually also reminded me of, and and sort of switching gears a bit, was how Chris Saka has talked about going on offense versus defense. And the reason that came to my mind was, I remember listening to, sort of like going back to the early history of Kickstarter. You mentioned um, in two months, like the the email started coming in and you knew something was there. What did that from there look like then, like building a company and employees? And one of the things I actually remember Chris Saka mentioning in some, some interview was that, and I don't know if it was early on or later, that Kickstarter raised funding and you guys decided not to speak about it and sort of like keep that under wraps. Just remember that from some interviews. So yeah, I'd love to learn sort of like about the, that early history of Kickstarter.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we were in New York, so we never did like the valley trip, but we met with everyone we could in New York for those years of trying to get it off the board uh, for potential <laughs> investment. And, you know, found a lot of interest from creative people, Less interest from more traditional finance people, but managed to like piece together the friends and family to get the site built. All along, there was a a particular investor, Fred Wilson, in Union Square Adventures, who we were really interested in. He blogged every day, so he felt accessible to us. He was a New Yorker, he liked Mm -hmm. music and culture. You know, we, we sort of identified with him. And so we were very much wanting to work with USV. And during all those years of trying to get anyone interested in Kickstarter, they were the only like professional investors who really got it. I remember mm-hmm. when Harry and I met with them and they instantly were like, we buy this idea. Why is it you guys? And that was like, no one had bought the idea before. You know, that was <laughs> like an unexpected question. So after the site launched and started getting that early traction, we started talking with them more and soon Fred was on board. Uh, but yeah, there were a few interesting things we did. I mean, one was that we said from the beginning and we told all these investors, you know, we're, we're not IPO-ing, we're not sell, we're not exiting the company like we want. To us, you know, Kickstarter success is it lasting and being meaningful to the creative community for a long time. And so your investment is not, you're not buying a lottery ticket on a potential rocket ship. And so everyone was like, sort of asked to be okay with that. And then we also said that, yeah, we weren't going to announce that we had raised, we weren't going to announce the funding round. And this was, this was like a U.S. Fred was like at the time and still is like one of the three best venture capitalists in the world. We'll probably go down as one of the 10 best ever. And Jack Dorsey and Katarina Fake and Zach Klein and people that we really admire and care about, mm-hmm. still care about, were part of it. But we thought if, like, who's going to write a story about us getting funding? It's going to be tech and business for us. And, like, those people aren't artists and creators. And artists and creators aren't reading tech and business for us, especially mm-hmm. in 2009. And all that that press is going to do is just going to create competition. It's going to say mm-hmm. to other people, oh, look, here's a, here's a new opportunity market to move mm-hmm. into. And so instead, we wanted, we actively avoided tech and business press for the most part, really always, Mm because we just thought that's just only going to create stuff within the industry. And like, and that's like, we are a creative services company that uses the internet because the internet's the best tool that's ever been invented to do things. So it's like, Mm -hmm. I always saw us as being a post-tech company. Like we're building on technology, but the point of our technology is not tech. Mm -hmm. The point of it is to facilitate creative projects ideas happening. And so, yeah, so we just didn't want to be in that new cycle because we just didn't see any benefit. We mm-hmm. saw only, only downside. And so for those investors, you know, they still went along because Kickstarter was a totally new model. I mean, there had been like crowdfunding experiments before and people had like dreamed of if only people could pay artists directly, like that mm-hmm. had always been the holy grail of the internet. And here we were the first thing that really was doing that mm-hmm. at, on like a platform level. And so everyone was like, just excited to be on board through that money and that you know that money was like not even a million dollars we got to profitability within you know within 14 months of the site being live we were operating in the black and have been ever since so the focus was like yeah stay quiet don't get too much attention except with like the people that you're trying to reach mm-hmm. be invisible to everyone else operate in the black so that you have total optionality so that you have total independence and Yeah, and like and don't try to push growth too quickly because our our sense was that that was riskier and that especially if you're trying to build something with the creative community. And at the time, like I really think we were one of the first web products that existed, that truly existed Mm -hmm. for artists. So I think it was like a new kind of language and space we're moving into, but just credibility, long term trust is just everything. You know, you just Mm -hmm. can't buy your you just can't buy your way into those scenes. And right. those are the scenes we came from. So it's just like, there's just a way that stuff works in this world. And we want to be the thing that earns trust steadily over time by doing what it's supposed to do. And then over time doing things like creating, a, I don't know if you're familiar with the Creative Independent, but this is mm-hmm. a, a magazine that we launched that is totally separate from Kickstarter. It's like a daily interview or essay by a working artist, amazing artists, like very famous artists, like going through the day-to-day realities of what they do. and so that. Doing a project like that, that is like elevating the cause of artists and creative people. It's creating more empathy and more understanding. It's providing a service for artists to their fellow artists. Mm-hmm. Like all of those things are absolutely in line with what the company stands for and are things you have to keep doing just to maintain that, that respect and trust level with mm-hmm. your core community. Yeah. And
0: it, it's interesting because too, is like in the creative community, there is sort of this ideal of focus on the work and not show off. And in a sense, that's, that's what you were doing. How was it like, sort of like going from idea to employees? And then also, I was going to ask about, spoke with our common friend and your, sort of like your journey from like co-founder to CEO. Yeah,
1: I mean, going from co founders to employees, I mean, that was, um, that was easy for me because I had been, like my past five years, I've been building teams, built teams at two other kind of startups. Again, slightly, in both cases, I'd started on the editorial side and ended up moving into like, more broader things by the end. But I'd done a lot of hiring at that point mm-hmm. and had a good track record and, and already had some people in mind for come some mm-hmm. of the early roles. But it, it was just fun. That was so exciting. Getting the office. The office was just like a floor of a tenement building in the Lower East Side. The six of us sitting around a table. I mean, a, an early moment of like, well, what's happening here was there were six of us and the site was growing. We've been around a little over a year. We were going to have to hire a seventh person, another CS person. And then it dawned on us that like a seventh person means would mean that we'd have to get a second table. And like, as all civic six of us sat around this one table, this table a buddy of ours made for us. And like, getting a second table actually seemed like a really big deal because it's like then other people are going to sit at those seats too, probably. And if you mm-hmm. get a second table, does that mean you get a third table? And like, mm-hmm. and what do you give up? Right. Um, and so there was always a lot of a lot of tension about growth. I remember I read a white paper by a physicist about like the golden ratio of like how you could determine from an animal size, its gestation period, its lifespan, all these sorts of things, that there were sort of these ratios that are meant to be maintained. And this paper ended up proposing that the golden ratio, of the healthy maximum point for an organization is 50 people. Mm-hmm. And that once you get beyond 50 people, you begin hiring people whose job is to facilitate the administration of the organization, thus inevitably slowing the organization down and atrophying it and leading it towards eventual death. This is this mm-hmm. theory. And so at the time we were like 25 people, maybe. And remember Perry and Charles and others of us, we talked about this for a while. And so we there's a point where we came up with, let's map out the last 25 hires at Kickstarter. Like let's imagine mm-hmm. who are how we would staff our 50 person company. Just thinking like that will allow us to stay a tight team, to have all the optionality of our decisions, to, to be nimble, to keep, keep it fun. That ended up getting impractical because we just sort of had a level of success where it was just really hard, really hard uh-huh. to do that as much as we wanted. So there's a lot of that kind of tension of like, you are wanting to grow, but wanting to grow in right ways, having an idea of what growing in wrong ways might be and living in a culture, a larger culture that was very much hyper growth oriented. So sort of being out of step with the zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. And that that caused a lot of caused a fair amount of anxiety for me. And then for me going from co-founder to CEO, yeah, that was that was a significant change. I mean, Perry, Perry and I always worked very closely together and made most choices together. He had been the CEO from the start. And then he, I guess we, after we've been live three and a half years or so, four years, he decided To step away, he didn't, or to step up to being chairman, he didn't want the day-to-day of the CEO job anymore. And so I stepped into that role. And it was an intimidating time because like my first day as CEO was our first day in our new office. We had bought, we bought an old factory, a pencil factory in Brooklyn. It spent like two years renovating it and turned it into this gigantic, beautiful warehouse office space. And our first day there, the company, we were 60 people. And we took up just like one tiny corner of three floors of this building. And it's like, what, what is supposed to happen here? And that led to a period of you know, just a lot of growth, a lot, a lot of growth in team, a lot of growth in platform. And through that, like a, a shift to maturing, a shift to like managing processes and just trying to create a well-run ship. And uh, while also doing things like it was during this period that Kickstarter became a public benefit corporation. So we mm-hmm. reincorporated to require the company to have a legal obligation to produce a public benefit to mm-hmm. society. So a lot of that period was like, you know, just creating the, that infrastructure to transition from the scrappy startup to like, we're a, a new kind of institution with mm-hmm. responsibilities and things we want to do and projects we want to launch. And so... For the next three and a half years, that was all of my life. You know, 150% of my life was taken yeah. up by that. And cool. then about two and, about two and a half years ago, just started to, my tank started to run empty. Mm-hmm. I was just, I started to get worn down after, at that point, mm-hmm. it was like 10 years or so full time mm-hmm. working on the project. And so I stepped away middle of 2017, mm-hmm. right? 2018 and then spent a year and a half, next two years working on this book and Bentoism. Mm-hmm. And, and now I think, I think projecting a you know, future that to me looks like, looks like one where we're more aware of all these dimensions of our self-interest. Mm-hmm. We become more comfortable with the realness and the rationality of the future and the collective mm-hmm. spaces. And that we start to think about value mm-hmm. in different ways. Like today we we really define value according to economic value. But even as, like, what we're seeing now with the pandemic, where a yep. you know, stock market goes up 6.6%, the same day 3.3 million people lose their jobs, you can see this misalignment. And mm-hmm. so I believe that the the larger transition that's happening now, and it will not be an easy one, but the larger transition we're, that's happening now is from a sort of a, a value monoculture mm-hmm. of just financial value to. Mm-hmm. You know, something like, almost like (laughs) multivariabilism, where there is financial value, there's also social value, there's ecological value, Mm -hmm. there's personal value, and that those are things that we begin to create rational rules and laws around, that those are things that we numerically measure, and that those become ways that goods are distributed and transactions happen in the future. So in my book, there's an example I give of Adele, the pop singer Adele, when She goes on tour, her shows immediately sell out um, because bots and scalpers buy them up and then fans have to pay hundreds or thousands of dollars more for a ticket. And so Adele found a a startup in the UK called Songkick that had built an algorithm that would approximate how loyal a fan was to an artist. So it would Mm -hmm. scan their social media data, their purchase data, whatever they could find and say, okay, here are like the top 20 percentile Adele fans in each market and use that algorithm to invite those fans to buy tickets, putting no restrictions on reselling, giving them like the 50 mm-hmm. buck face value. And so only, it worked. Only 2% of those tickets got resold, fans saved hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars per show. And what's funny is that, you know, Adele's still, the, the concert's still operated in the black. There's still a financial mm-hmm. outcome for her that's positive, but the shows are optimizing for another form of value. They're optimizing for this now us value of community and loyalty. Any and experience. so to me- and the experience. And to yeah. me, this is an example of a post-capitalist transaction mm-hmm. where there is a satisfying of a financial outcome, right. and then there is a maximizing mm-hmm. of an additional metric or value mm-hmm. on top of that. And right. I think a transaction like this, especially to be like numerically defined, is never possible in the way it, before, like it is now. That mm-hmm. sort of big data, the digitalization of our Sort of collective consciousness, all these things lend us the ability to discern new signals and to define new forms of value. And I think that's what's happening now. And I think that financial value and markets will still be dominant, as I think they should be in many areas of life, but other areas where they produce perverse outcomes that we're going to find basically better things to optimize for. And I think that there will be a sort of an emotional shift in that direction. uh, And then which is already happening, but then what's most important is a rational shift where it becomes possible for operators to make choices like this without being like woke. It can't right. be that you have to subscribe to the same five newsletters to make good choices. It has to be that making good choices is so well understood and easy to do that regardless of your personal political mm-hmm. or whatever kinds of beliefs, that still, you just know what is a, a good decision and a bad decision. Yeah as it reflects these core values that matter. And so that process of evolution, I believe is what the next 30 years is about. And it's not, we're not starting from zero. I think this has been underway for maybe the last eight or nine years. Mm -hmm. But I think that that this is the the meta narrative of this moment.
0: I I completely agree. And I remember when five years ago, sort of you announced the decision to, go to a public benefit corporation, it was a huge shift. So I actually wanted to ask you more about that in the context of a few things that you had mentioned in terms of topics. I think they play into it, which is like the hidden defaults of the world today and, and sort of this idea of like financial maximization along with yeah. the challenges in capitalism. And I think this plays into this. It uh, was a note from, I got from Justin to ask about it. it was like the mullet economy. So in the context of those, I would love to kind of like understand sort of the why behind the switch to the, the public benefit corporation and, and sort of how you came to that.
1: Yeah. I mean, we, um, I'm like the don't sell out guy, right? Mm-hmm. And, and this is a place where Perry Charles and I all really saw eye to eye about like, the long-term, long-term success of the company. But you know, we also learned that our position to not sell out was theoretically like put us at some legal risk because officers of a company have a fiduciary responsibility to their stakeholders and the law generally holds that responsibility to be to maximize shareholder value. So mm-hmm. any choice we were making that was not maximizing shareholder value, theoretically someone could sue over, Now that wasn't likely, but also like Ben and Jerry's was forced to sell the Unilever and they would have been sued if they hadn't for these same reasons. Mm -hmm. So becoming a PBC was like trying to codify and make those things real and Mm -hmm. and real in a way where they're like in a filing cabinet in Delaware real. But looking around, like we had, because this value system didn't sit well with us, we had the presence of mind to question it, but we looked around and saw everyone else operating to this, this assumption that just like, if you just maximize for financial growth, everything will work itself out. And, and that was just, that was not something that sat well with us. And especially when you looked at, you know, so, so I ended up giving a talk while I was the CEO of Kickstarter about these larger issues. And I talked about watching my neighborhood in the Lower East Side. It changed when like an old dive bar that had been a, like a birthplace of punk got torn down and replaced by a TD bank. And it was the Fourth TD Bank within a 15 minute walk of that corner at the time. And so, as someone who lived in the neighborhood, it's like, what in the world is going on here? How is this one value system overrunning us? Right. And so, I gave a talk about this that really struck a chord. And as I started working on the book, it was sort of digging on this same thread of like, we've allowed this one value system to overtake everything else. And, you know, one of the things I want to try to understand is when did this happen? Has it always been this way? Mm-hmm. And I came to believe that there was a moment where this did shift and it shifted. The ideological shift really happened in the early '70s. That's where Milton Friedman first wrote an essay sort of laying out the stakeholder capitalism argument. But then you have a lot of a lot of deregulation of the financial services industry, and just a real shift in how Americans thought about money. There's a study I cite in the book where every year since the 1960s UCLA has interviewed incoming college freshmen all across America, millions of students, asking them about their goals in life and And one of the questions says, like, say whether this goal is essential or not essential, Mm -hmm. basically. And and one of these goals is about money. And in 1970, the percentage of college freshmen who said that being wealthy was essential or very important was 28%. In Mm -hmm. 1970, the most essential life goal, according to college freshmen, was to, quote, develop a meaningful philosophy on life. 86% of students said that was essential. Uh, The last year this survey came out in 2017, the percentage of students who said being rich was essential, 82%. The percentage of students who said having a meaningful philosophy on life is essential is about 40%. And the growth of the belief in being rich as essential is the largest change of any value over the 50 years this thing has run. Like the desire to have a family, the desire to be an artist, the desire to be good at your profession, all those have stayed relatively constant. Mm -hmm. But the belief in wealth and financial value has been the biggest grower. So there has been a a shift in the values that has happened around us. And another way that I, I illustrate this is pointing out that from 1948 to 1973, the wages of the average American worker grew by over 90%. Lowest paid workers got the biggest raises of all. But from 1973 until today, workers have gotten about a 10% pay raise adjusted for inflation. So mm-hmm. over 50 years, just like a 10% pay raise. So the, the high pay for work for productivity of the average American worker was 1973, the same year Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon came out, like a really, really long time ago. I show this graph of showing how like the productivity of workers has continued to increase, but their pay has stopped growing. And I I say that what this image makes me think about is the mullet. Mm -hmm. The mullet, which of course is the pinnacle of 80s hair, fashion, and technology has the Mm -hmm. modularity of business in front and party in the back. And the mullet economy is business in front, where for 90% of people, for workers, has been Mm -hmm. frozen wages, offshoring jobs, more job insecurity than ever before. So their earnings are getting cut. Mm -hmm. For the top 10%, it is a long and luscious mullet in the back. Over the same years that workers have gotten a 10% raise, the average American executive has gotten a 1,000% raise. And this has come from stopping wage growth, laying people off, and just sort of accruing more of that capital in a smaller number of hands. Um. So it's just trying to give like a, a visual language to help us understand really what's happening. And, and the book is, and really I'm making the case that the focus on financial value is like, it's a useful, a very utilitarian approach to value. The mm-hmm. measured has surpassed the not measured. The world used to be ruled by moral values of what's right and wrong. Now they're ruled by these rational values of more or less. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, there's a rationality to that. It makes sense. And I believe that the future course of the world is that for more of those moral values that say are left out or are seen as emotional Mm -hmm. and irrational in the debates that we have now, that those things become rationally understood or widely accepted to be real and to be relevant. Because I've been enough of these conversations where you're an exec meeting, a board meeting, and there's two paths. There's one path that has a financially maximizing outcome. Mm -hmm. There's another path that maximizes for a different kind of outcome other than a financial one. You know, in every occasion other than an emergency, that team is going to choose the financially maximizing outcome Mm -hmm. because that other value that's being grown for seems not as real. Mm -hmm. But I think in many cases it is, and it actually might be more relevant and might be the most profitable long-term value to optimize for. But that case has to be demonstrated. And I think that has to be modeled. And like, this is where you do need the, there is a survival of the fittest of, ideas and concepts that can provide value and utility will persist. And I think that that is what's going to happen in this space.
0: And I think we're definitely seeing that even in the sort of like course of this pandemic, which is with the rising unemployment, it's making us confront a lot of issues, which I think we sort of like ignored. And those cracks were there, but now it's really bringing it to the forefront because it just accelerated everything.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: And the book, of course, is This Could Be Our Future, um, which we'll have linked up. Um, I was curious to sort of like once you left Kickstarter, why not like rest on your laurels? Sort of like, what in, what was the inspiration behind again reinventing yourself as an author?
1: Well, I thought that I was. I thought that I was just going to sleep for a year. That was my plan. But I, you know, really the first day I woke up, not going to the office, being out of not being in the the role, I was surprised to feel like more energy than I'd felt in ages. And it took me a while to realize it. But I, I think what I what I came to feel that it was, was that I I was no longer having to filter all of my thoughts through the organization. Is this a right or wrong thought for the brand, for the team, for the product? How do I say this? Is it right to say this? Is it wrong to say this? When do I say this? You know, just this constant iterative process of finding, of identifying what's most important and the appropriate response to it. And instead, I was just thinking about myself and my family. Uh And that was so exciting. That was so exciting. It had been such a long time since things had felt that simple. And so, yeah, I just had more energy than I expected. I, I wasn't sure what to do with it. And I ended up, I had this thought of like, I've led, you know, I've done like tons of planning off sites with the executive team, a mm-hmm. lot of like that type of thinking. And I thought, well, why don't I treat myself like I'm a company? How mm-hmm. about I'm Yancy? I'm Yancy PBC. <laughs> and it's my job to like do strategic planning for the next two years. Mm-hmm. So what do I do? So I took out a notebook and I started running through these kinds of like brainstorming and framework processes, like swatting myself and mm-hmm. listing all my resources, listing every project, like doing an audit of everything I'd ever done. One of my homework assignments was to try to make a website for myself, just to draw it in a notebook. What would a mm-hmm. website about me, what's on that website, what's not? Mm-hmm. And, and by the end of that, I came up with, I sort of honed in on five different things that were interesting to me. One was to teach. One was, I'd had a side project, like a company side project with a couple of friends. One was like, I'll go do that full time. I'll become a CEO of another company. One was like a video film idea I'd had. One was to be a journalist again. And one was to write this book. And so I, um, the following week, I basically made a schedule where each day I tried to wake up and pretend that I had that job. So I couldn't actually like go teach kids in school, but I like made a lesson plan. I imagine what I would teach someone about. I tried to like be in that space, had my day being a CEO of my side project. Okay. Let me imagine I'm doing that full time. What am I, what am I doing all day? And would literally force myself to do it for a whole day long and, and would just be like listening to my body during that <clears> process. And, and one of those options was writing a book and it was like sort of pulling on the thread of, of this talks I've been giving as a CEO And when I spent the day imagining that book, like finding it, who would I pitch it to, how would I want to do it, et cetera, I Mm -hmm. felt, I physically felt that this was the right thing. But I kept, I I, I really liked that sort of constraint, sort of method process. Um, And so I kept using that um, from then on. Then I said, okay, well, if I'm going to do this, then I need to have an agent by this point. And I met with a bunch of potential agents and Mm -hmm. there's one person that like was more skeptical of me than everyone else. And so I liked him. I wanted to go with him <laughs> because I thought he's not going to let me make a fool of myself. Everyone right. else is blowing smoke. This guy mm-hmm. was like, I think your idea is pretty good. So I'm like, I want to work with that guy because he's going to help me get, make my idea great. Mm-hmm. So I started working with him. And then I told him this is in like September. And I was like, I want to have, have a deal by the end of the year. Like, that's my goal for mm-hmm. like, I'm just, I'm on this momentum train. I want to have a deal by the end of the year. So he like, we strategize when that would mean we need to send out the pitch. And sort mm-hmm. of like work backwards from that. And again I was just like I have to hit this deadline or else I'm, this isn't going to happen for me. And even when I signed the book deal, I gave myself just a year to finish it because I wanted I wanted it to kick my ass. And so all of these things were means of like of just forcing me, forcing me to, to behave in these ways that would be harder for me otherwise. I would have like It's like being forced to decide whether or not to move to New York tomorrow. It's just Mm -hmm. such an instant. You have no no decision but to act.
0: So you've sort of like done all these different things with like like music critic and CEO and writer. I'm always curious, like when people have switched careers that way, like what are some of the, and I know you've already talked about like ventism and stuff, what are some of the common like themes and patterns or just
1: ways that you've observed between them? I guess that there is probably that every world is very access driven the right kinds of introductions mean an immense amount. There's definitely like the Dunning-Kruger effect in every world where you think mm-hmm. you know everything and all the ways that it's stupid. Oh, the music industry is so dumb for X, Y, and Z. Oh, the film yeah. industry is so dumb for X, Y, and Z. And then there's generally a good reason why things are the way they are. And mm-hmm. it isn't always that like someone's out to get you. So sort of you learn the, the humility of like, if you roll in being like, well, I have a better idea, mm-hmm. almost immediately someone will be like, yeah, yeah, no, we tried that idea. <laughs> this doesn't work for X, X, Y, or Z reasons. So there's, I think there's a humility that comes with it. So in every world, I think that there's, it's can you can you create value for people? Can you reach out to people with gives instead of with asks? Those are things that go a long ways. Traits that are very portable are like communication, critical thinking, the experience of everything I went through in Kickstarter is immensely valuable to me on a day-to-day basis. But like the Specific challenges I worked on. It's amazing how far a lot, how far away a lot of those things feel. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know. I think that I've succeeded in a lot of these organizations in these different worlds because I don't know. I think because I am, I have this ability to sandwich together disparate ideas sort of hold together, you know, kind of what the bento does. So mm-hmm. to, to simultaneously hold the individual and collective, to simultaneously hold the now and the future, to allow those things to have an, an integrity with one another. I think that's what I bring to the projects I work on. And I trace that back to just the very beginning of like growing up in a place where I didn't feel like I fit in and a mm-hmm. place where I did feel like I would fit in, still struggling with those feelings and sort of getting the, seeing the two sides of everything just creates a level of maybe appreciation and a desire for a kind of like roundedness of thought and expression that, that I think is is helpful. But so much of, but I would say all these things I'm saying, probably I only realized after Kickstarter, even the pattern of my early career is something that maybe took me 20 years to be able to say, oh, there is a pattern to my career. Mm-hmm. You know, what I'm doing, I'm just doing what seems obvious and mm-hmm. what feels right. And right. never have I been so conscious and active in my planning and uh, and awareness as I am today. I've always been like anxious and self-aware, but I think the process has taught me how to harness that towards an outcome rather than let it just run away with your mind.
0: I love that. I know we're coming up in time. So like a few last questions for you. One is, um, I know you've talked about how much you read. I'm curious, like, what are you reading right now? And sort of in terms of music, like what albums are, and this is actually from Justin, what albums are animating you right now? So I know you'd mentioned spiritual free jazz in
1: yeah. initially. Yeah. So books reading now, right now, I'm so the things that I just finished, Hyperion by Dan Simmons, which is an amazing science fiction book, amazing <laughs> science fiction book from 1990. So good. The other one I just finished that I loved was Carl Jung of Man and His Symbols. Like a book I've seen referenced in a million things, never read, decided I would try reading young and was like shocked by how readable it is. Mm-hmm. It's like very relatable, not at all what I thought it was going to be. What else am I reading right now?
0: And even like, what are, what are maybe like books that have had an impact on you? Or yeah.
1: Well, you? I mean, I, I think to me, it's like, there's like a few sort of philosophical books and I use philosophical and say a broader term, but like I would say, Konosuke Matsushita, Not for Bread Alone. He's like the founder of Panasonic, a book from the 80s, a Japanese businessman. That's an amazing book. E.F. Schumacher, Small is Beautiful, Economics as if People Mattered. That's a beautiful book from the early 1970s by a German economist. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Probably the book that most influenced my book, there are two. One is called Spheres of Justice by Michael Walzer. Another is called Value in Ethics and Economics by Elizabeth Anderson. They're both super, super brilliant explorations of value and values. The other ones that really shaped me are science fiction. Dune is probably my single favorite book of all time. And I just reread it again this year. Three Body Problem, the Shi Shin Lu's sci-fi trilogy, I think are outrageous, brilliant. The Foundation series by Asimov, I think is incredibly brilliant. Solaris by Stanislav Lem, I think is amazing. What I love about sci-fi is just the Sci-fi is always about the present mm-hmm. and it's just creating a, a different reality to reveal the truth of the present. And so that's I learn a lot from that and it, it engages my mind. And I, I think, you know, I when I was living in the country writing on my own, I wrote a lot of sci-fi when I was like in fifth grade. And that's a think that that's a place I'd like to return to before it's all over. That's amazing. so music I would just say, yeah, spiritual jazz, Alice Coltrane, Pharaoh Sanders, Sun Ra, Don Cherry, Organic Music Society, I think is probably my favorite record. Let's do the ladders. That's from the early '70s. It's just music that sounds like life, and this is all just like it's just the sound that fills my house all day long, and it's it's wonderful. And then I love I love Solange. I enjoy I listen to a lot of hip hop. As a rock critic, I had to know like the newest and latest everything. Mm-hmm. My year that I quit being a rock critic, I was really. Like I was afraid of the identity change of going from a, a writer to a business person. That was like a very big thing for me. But my year, I was like, am I ever going to listen to music anymore? And in my first year after being a rock critic, all I did was I listened to Fleetwood Mac Tusk for a year straight. And it was like the best year of listening I'd ever had. I just loved it so much. But I got to just engage with music in such a different way than I'd had over the previous 10 years when it was about having the fastest, strongest opinion.
0: How did that influence your work at- Kickstarter, like uh, your work as a rock critic uh, covering musicians, how did that influence your work at Kickstarter
1: if it did? It just makes you hyper aware of cool, the importance of cool, what is cool, what's not cool, the cachet of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, music, music is a cool culture. That is the, that is the value of exchange. It's cool. Mm -hmm. And so it just gives you a strong sense of that.
0: There's a video with, with like, I think, like Nipsey Hussle and Gary Vaynerchuk talking about how, how hip-hop drives the world. So last question, something we've been experimenting with. Uh,
1: what is, since the name of the show is Conscious Creators, what does being a conscious creator mean to you? To me, that means it suggests an intentionality. It suggests a destination that you're working towards. You mm-hmm. may not know everything about it. I think as an artist, you see things in colors and shapes and feelings, maybe more than like a fully executable plan. But the beauty of the creative process and the artistic process is working through those shapes and colors and finding the meaning through them, Mm -hmm. Um, finding the the meaningful expression, the one that reflects the story or feeling you're trying to create in your mind. And that communicates in a way that other people can also feel that. And, And so I think it's possible. It's certainly very possible to stumble across those things. But I think that to do it consistently requires that larger vision and to me i found like this bento frame as being the the user interface (laughs) for my own for my own values and what's guiding me and i think an interface that yeah allows me to act consciously allows me to to have an active awareness and yeah and, and to me that's the difference between a career and like i tried this one time and so yeah i'm to me, I see that level of awareness as being critical to any kind of meaning. Mm-hmm. Perfect.
0: Thank you so much for doing this. Obviously, we'll have all of your social media and everything linked up. If people want to like find you after or, or say thank you, where can they find you? What's the best
1: way? Yeah, I'm just at whystrickler.com is my website. And you can find Bentuism at bentuism.org. And yeah, look me up. Awesome. Thank you, Antti. All right. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Yep. Hey, it's Sachit again. If you enjoyed
0: today's episode as much as I did, Make sure you thank our guests and let them know what you thought. There's easy links to all of their social media, Twitter, Instagram, everything else in the show notes. Secondly, make sure you head on over to creators.show to get new episodes, exclusive guides, partner deals, and additional bonuses. See you next week.